podcast, Alex talks about the future of AI and how it's disrupting the world. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Future of Data podcast. Today we have with us uh, an amazing guest, Dr. Alexander Wisner-Gross. Um, he is an award-winning scientist, engineer, entrepreneur, investor, and, on- and author. He serves as president and uh, chief scientist at Jeopardy and holds academic appointments at Harvard and MIT. He has received 125 major distinctions, authored 18, pub- 18 publications, been granted 24 issued pending and provisional patents and founded, managed and advised four technology companies that were acquired for a combined value of over $600 million. In 1998-1999, respectively, he won the USA uh, Computer Olympiad and the Intel Science Talent Search. In 2003, he became the last person in MIT history to uh, receive a triple major with bachelors in physics, electrical science, engineering and mathematics. While graduating first in his class from MIT School of Engineering in 2007, he completed his PhD in physics at Harvard, where his research on uh, neuromorphic computing, machine learning, programmable matter was awarded the Dirt's um, Hertz Doctoral Thesis Prize. A thought leader in AI, uh, he is a contributing author of the New York Times science bestseller, The Idea Must Die, and the Amazon uh, number one new release, What to Think About Machine That Think. And um, a, a popular TED speaker, he talk, his talk has been viewed more than 2 million times and translated into 27 languages. His work has been featured in more than 200 press outlets worldwide, including the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, CNN, USA Today, and Wired. With that, um, Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Beautiful. So this is, this is remarkable. Uh, I think... Um, in, 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 in our podcast, we, we always thrive to meet someone who has a really a stake in the game when it comes to future of data. And I think your uh, previous work and your current focus uh, point to that. So why don't you walk us through your journey, uh, your background and, and, and what, 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 how has your journey been in this world of data science and, and, and AI? Absolutely. So from a very young age, I was always interested in the future. I was always interested in, in science fiction. And for, for many years uh, growing up, I, I spent a lot of time trying to think about what shortcuts to, to these amazing futures would look like. Uh, before uh, the, uh, the 1990s, uh, the shortcuts to me looked a lot like they involved artificial intelligence. And uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in, in high school uh, sort of pursuing what I thought would be intriguing pathways towards uh, what we now, what, what some people may now call the, the technological singularity, the, the time when machines may exceed to humans in intelligence. Uh, and then something interesting happened uh, in the late 90s. The sort of, this was 10 years after the, uh, the most recent AI winter, and there hadn't been any really uh, impressive to me uh, advances in artificial intelligence and at the same time uh, other fields such as nanotechnology uh, seemed like much more plausible shortcuts to uh, achieving all of these grand challenge long-term objectives and so I, uh, I pivoted from from thinking about AI 
to thinking about nanotechnology and the intersection of nanotechnology and intelligence. Uh, and I spent uh, a number of years doing that. Uh, my, my time at MIT as an undergrad was, uh, was largely focused on the intersection of, of AI and uh, smart materials and nanotechnology and neuromorphic systems. And then uh, for my PhD, I worked at Harvard. I got my PhD in physics in 2007, and my PhD was largely focused on the intersection, again, of nanotechnology and intelligence and neuromorphic systems and machine learning. But then something, uh, another interesting thing happened, which is that AI finally started to work. Uh, at, at first, uh, in the form of, uh, of systems built by large technology companies that were handling data at scale. Uh, and then after that, in the, the late 2000s, some of the, the earliest uh, examples of useful uh, neural network systems, uh, convolutional network-derived systems, started to, uh, to gain wide acclaim for solving problems uh, that had previously been more or less unattainable uh, grand challenges, such as solving problems in computer vision, vis-a-vis uh, -vis the ImageNet competition. And that got me excited again about pursuing more direct paths uh, to the singularity uh, that went through AI and artificial general intelligence, AGI, as opposed to indirect uh, or biotechnology, another interest of mine. Uh, and so I, I refocused many of my efforts, uh, this time uh, using uh, years of, of experience uh, and knowledge in, in physics to, uh, to start to approach AI again from uh, a somewhat unusual standpoint, and that is the physics of artificial intelligence, uh, which I think is still probably an underutilized uh, intellectual approach in the overall field. And I started thinking uh, in the late 2000s about what a future physics discipline of, of intelligence and artificial intelligence might look like. And so that, that's really how I ended up uh, intellectually where I am right now. I've, I obviously, I wear a number of hats. So uh, as you mentioned, I've started a number of companies since finishing my PhD. Uh, I hold academic appointments at both Harvard and MIT. At MIT, I'm at the Media Lab. At Harvard, I'm at the Institute for Applied Computational Science and the Harvard Innovation Lab. Uh, I've advised a number of government agencies. I helped to organize the MIT Angel Alumni of, of Boston. So I, I wear a lot of hats, but the, the, the sort of broad theme unifying a lot of my work at this point is identifying expedient paths to achieving artificial general intelligence that is safe, that is evenly distributed, and that is soon. Uh, I'm impatient in general. I want many of these advances to come sooner rather than later, and I'm trying to do my part to accelerate them. Beautiful. Um, thank you so much for walking us through that. So let's talk about um, your work at Gemini. So um, what do you do nowadays, uh, if, if you can walk us through your current, uh, what, what's happening now? We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Sure. So Gemini is a company that I, uh, that I started in 2011 with the goal of evenly distributing artificial intelligence throughout the economy. I think it's going to be essential for long-term mm -hmm. economic growth as well as for safety of artificial intelligence to have AI 
uh, advanced AI capabilities accessible from within a variety of sectors. Uh, so Gemini is largely focused on AI as it applies to government uh, and enterprise applications. Uh, and we do everything from uh, new approaches to machine learning uh, to new approaches to autonomy. And the latter is something we think a lot about, uh, in, in particular, thinking about ways to build systems that are not just in a sort of a narrow artificial intelligence sense learning, but systems that actually have opinions about courses of action, systems that have opinions about optimal ways to control their environment, optimal ways to act in given environments. And I, I think autonomous AI in general is, uh, is really intriguing as a subfield of AI in the sense that uh, it receives a lot of attention in the academic literature, but in terms of uh, economic and industrial applications, uh, I, I would say it has been uh, underutilized and underappreciated compared to, say, sort of off-the-shelf machine learning classification type applications. So that's a huge area of interest for us. Interesting. And so um, you, brief, you uh, briefly you talked about physics of AI. Like, so what is the physics of AI, if you can walk us through that? Absolutely. So uh, I think that if, uh, sort of as a thought experiment, uh, if we were to look back at uh, the history of technology, we find that a, a common failure mode uh, of, uh, of the way humanity has developed technology uh, that, uh, that tries to uh, imitate processes that we observe in nature is that we've often tried to copy mechanisms rather than phenomenologies. And what I mean by that is, if you look at, for example, the history of artificial powered flight, we arguably, Royal We, spent centuries trying to imitate the mechanism of, say, flapping uh, of, of different uh, species of birds uh, or bats, uh, rather than trying to understand the physics, the, the underlying fundamental dynamics of lift and drag and weight and thrust. Uh, and if Perhaps, and again, this is a thought experiment, if earlier on we had focused more of our civilization's efforts on understanding these fundamental physical aspects of flight uh, as, it, uh, as it occurred in, in the natural world, rather than trying to slavishly copy mechanisms uh, of examples that we saw, uh, I would argue that we might have achieved artificial powered flight centuries earlier mm -hmm. than we actually did. So. Similarly, reasoning by analogy, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the past decade thinking about ways to understand the physics of intelligence. What if history books decades from now inform us that maybe we wasted about half century to maybe a full century's worth of time slavishly copying the mechanisms of intelligence that we observe in humans mm -hmm. without ever asking the question, what is the physics of intelligence? If if we have intelligence as some sort of physical process, what are, what are good, rigorous, absolute definitions of intelligence as a process that don't self-referentially depend on humans and human behavior? Uh, and so that, that's what I mean when I, when I talk about the physics of intelligence. And I think we've made a lot of progress over the past decade in that direction of, of pinning down the fundamental equations of how intelligence behaves. Uh, and I, I would say more philosophically, starting to think about intelligence not as a, a noun or an adjective, but rather as a verb, and treating intelligence as a process in the same way that flying a machine should be properly treated as a process and less as a noun or an adjective. Interesting. So um, 
that's interesting so basically um you also talked about um in 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 gemedi's uh, sort of context that you're you're working on on the idea of eventually distributing the ai capabilities right so what what is so what are some of the some of the some of the uh, general use cases that you can talk about where we need something like a, a, a an even evenly distribution platform for for something like ai capability if you can walk us through that we'll resume after a short break this part of the podcast is brought to you by first friday fair fastest ai powered way to find your next opportunity check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job let's get back to the podcast absolutely so the the times when it's essential to to start to think about delegating decision making capabilities to uh, to autonomous ais uh, i think fall into uh, several buckets my my two favorite buckets are one uh, it's important to to keep machines in the decision making loop when decisions need to be made on, on time scales that are too fast for humans uh, to to provide relevant decision making that, that's the sort of delegation i think that with more narrow applications uh, we're accustomed to with modern computing computers are making billions of decisions every second and we're accustomed to delegating these very narrow very focused decisions uh, to computers what's new uh, is delegating higher level more strategic decisions uh, to uh, to autonomous ais so decisions that need to be made on very fast time scales i would say is one class of applications that we work on second class of applications is cases where the objective of decision making uh, so called utility function is too complex for uh, for humans to specify in a machine understandable way for any given environment so i'll, I'll give you a concrete example let's think about uh, economics and wealth uh, so if if i were to say define wealth without re- referring uh, self referentially to currency without being able to refer to dollars you know how would one define what wealth is and and of course this is pretty broadly applicable a large fraction of our economy is devoted to building machines that try to increase human wealth um so thinking about ways to formalize in an environment independent uh, but machine understandable and machine reasonable way how you how you achieve complex objectives that are so complex that humans can't easily specify them in an environmentally sensitive way is a second class uh, second class of activities that we think autonomous ai decision making is highly appropriate for interesting um that's that's cool and i think um you were also talking about something like um so uh, when you were coming in the world of ai it ai and and i i like a couple of decades back ai was um, pretty useless thing right so it has a massive error rate um and you can't just rely on it and and things have changed dramatically as you also pointed out so what's your take on the state of ai um what's what what are you what have you seen and where you, where you see it going i i think we're finally at at a point where it is possible to start to enumerate the remaining challenges between what we have right now and what would constitute uh what some might call artificial superintelligence and i i think that's a, a novel state to be in uh, i think in the early days in the late 1950s when uh some of the the founders of the modern fields uh, of ai thought that say solving the problem of computer vision might be a sufficiently tractable challenge that you could assign it to a summer intern 
Uh, I, I think we've learned quite a bit uh, since uh, since half a century ago. Uh, I think we've we've also learned meta lessons uh, about uh, how how to make grand challenges in AI tractable. I wrote an essay. Uh, many of the problems that have been solved over the past 30 years in AI were arguably data set challenges and not algorithmic challenges and not computational challenges. Uh, so for example, uh, problems like overcoming uh, human level capabilities on the game of Jeopardy uh, or superhuman chess playing or spontaneous speech translation uh, or a real-time control of environments and the examples go on and on. These were all challenges, uh, grand challenges in AI that were ultimately overcome, I would argue, using highly curated, highly available data sets and less, uh, less so uh, algorithms. Uh, in particular, if you look at the histories of how some of the grand challenges, and of course computer vision is a, a favorite example, uh, in, in part because it was the, the progress towards computer vision that, that really helped to re rekindle my own interest in pursuing AI directly as opposed to indirectly. Uh, I think that the story of modern computer vision uh, is a story of an algorithmic in, in, uh, innovation uh, that, uh, that is attributable to Jan LeCun uh, in the late 80s that was used in the early days by the post office for, for recognizing zip codes, but otherwise um, really not valued or, or properly respected by the broader AI community for decades. Uh, it uh, sat on the shelf in, in, in some approximate sense uh, for, for about 30 years uh, until broader community interest was rekindled in convolutional networks thanks to uh, the ImageNet competition. Uh, and I think ImageNet is sort of a beautiful example of this data set driven approach to AI um, in, in the sense that ImageNet consisted of, uh, at least in the early days, about a million well annotated uh, images. Uh, and if you look at the history of performance in the ImageNet competition, it only took four or five years before starting from the availability of this well curated data set uh, until we had superhuman uh, computer vision, uh, specifically like object classification performance. Uh, and that, that to me is utterly remarkable. And it also suggests on the one hand, you have a key algorithm that has been sitting on the shelf since the late 80s. On the other hand, we have a newly available data set around which we could rally a community and force uh, different uh, sort of uh, different algorithmic approaches to butt heads on a common playing field, a level playing field, apparently that's all that it takes to overcome grand challenges. So I started asking myself, well, if this is really the case, if, if grand challenges in AI can be overcome by simply formulating standard playing fields uh, against which uh, algorithms uh, can, uh, can be forced to be benchmarked uh, against each other, how many more milestones do we really have? How many grand challenges remain before we have superhuman general artificial intelligence? And my own estimate would be, we really don't have that many left. I, I would count maybe uh, five or so before uh, we, we achieve general intelligence. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Interesting. So 
that's that's pretty cool so i think one thing that i, I definitely want your perspective on is so what is intelligence like when it comes to uh, how ai perceive it or, or how human perceive it like what from your vantage point what how do you define intelligence right so so my favorite definition of intelligence and i i uh, published a, a more formal uh, foundation for, for this approach uh, is that intelligence should be viewed as a process that tries to maximize future freedom of action. Uh, and yeah. I, I think uh, there are many, uh, many likable attributes uh, of this approach. Um, I think it's, it's completely universal in the sense that it's not tailored to any particular environment. Uh, it encompasses both learning and control. Uh, and it also follows very naturally uh, in a reinforcement learning sense uh, from uh, perhaps more conventional, more banal definitions of intelligence. So some might say intelligence is the ability to efficiently uh, achieve rewards in diverse environments. Um, uh, some might even say, and I, I would view this, this approach as even more parochial, that intelligence is the ability to learn things. Um, and I think these are both very narrow approaches that are uh, perhaps overly focused on um, reinforcement learning and supervised learning, respectively. Mm. Um, the beauty of this approach is uh, not just that it subsumes both of those approaches, uh, but also that in a, a very formal sense, uh, it, uh, it is uh, necessary for both of those approaches. Uh, so, and, and this is sort of interesting case study. Uh, if, uh, for those in the audience not familiar with Nick Bostrom's work on uh, instrumental convergence uh, and the orthogonality thesis, uh, there is a conjecture, um, which uh, to this point has not yet been uh, formally proven, uh, to my knowledge, uh, that sufficiently advanced intelligences will have a short-term behavior that converges uh, if their long-term rewards are, are, are given a sufficiently high time horizon. And if this conjecture, even with some uh, constraints, turns out to be valid, uh, then I think this is totally remarkable for for the future study of AI. It would mean, in the same sense uh, that with the field of statistics, that we have some foundational theorems, uh, like central limit, limit theorems, that enable us to, uh, for, for many cases, uh, many probability distributions, not need to study arbitrary probability distributions. We can focus on maybe some, in some sense, universal probability distributions, like, uh, like Gaussian distributions, the so-called bell curve. Um, it, it would be totally revolutionary, I, I think, for the discipline of artificial intelligence if some variant of the instrumental convergence hypothesis turned out to be accurate. It would mean that instead of having to worry about arbitrary AIs with arbitrary reward functions, arbitrary goals, we could instead focus on a sort of a single universal type of, of AI formulation. Uh, and, and my own conjecture, and this is something that I, I think a lot about, um, would be that the sort of universal AI approach would would look like uh, a future freedom of future future freedom of action maximizing agent, uh, and I, I think this will be a, a very powerful concept because this gives us a, just a single AI that we can study and understand deeply. Interesting, that that's pretty cool. So when when I was thinking about um, future of uh, uh, freedom of action with maximize impact. Won't it open up uh, the the pothole of precision versus accuracy debate, right? So, if if I want to if I want to have uh, a, a maximum future like uh, uh, maximum 
future of freedom uh, of action uh, with maximum impact i would be doing something where i'm getting maximum success right i'll just keep digging and 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 that area and exploiting that uh, so won't that means like i'm more sort of creating something which is more uh, towards precision versus accuracy what what's what's your what's your thought on that yeah no it, it's a really interesting um point uh, and uh, a seeming contradiction that uh, on the one hand you have a, a system that tries to maximize its future freedom of action but on the other hand perhaps the best way to maximize future freedom of action is by cocooning yourself in some mm. uh very narrow portion of a phase space um and so so i have two answers to that uh the the first is uh understanding the nature of bottlenecks in phase space so mm. it's often the case uh that for for achieving long term goals it is advantageous over the short term to narrow yourself in phase space uh for example if you are uh driving cross country or perhaps you want to drive from the east coast to any position on the west coast of this country you might at various points have to drive through tunnels uh and the tunnel is a bottleneck in your future path space uh where you are in in some generalized sense investing over short time scales in in narrowing your options with the expectation that once you get through the tunnel you'll have many more options on the opposite side uh perhaps a a more uh prosaic example would be financial investing why would anyone who wants to increase their net worth ever lose liquidity uh from cash in the form of an illiquid financial instrument and the answer is you do that with the expectation that at some point you regain liquidity but you uh gain a a net increase in liquidity that uh you would not otherwise be able to attain if you would simply stayed all cash and never invested in equities or other securities so in in sort of broad first class of, of examples uh in in answer to that question would be that it is often arguably universally the case that in order to uh, for a variety of systems in order to maximize future freedom of action in over the long term it's necessary to reduce future freedom of action over the short term and we have a name for that we call that investment mm-hmm. um so so that's that's one class of answers a uh, second class of answers is more environmentally sensitive so why would you cocoon yourself uh in phase space on the one hand while maximizing future freedom of action well some environments that are sufficiently uh sufficiently calm uh that's a qualitative characterization uh allow you to cocoon yourself in phase space without punishment mm-hmm. uh but uh more generically environments can be expected to be sufficiently dynamic that just cordoning yourself off in a narrow portion in phase space is not actually uh a successful or rewarding long-term strategy uh, for maximizing future freedom of action. So an example of that would be, you know, maybe imagine a tree uh that is rooted in space-time and uh that could be a great, you know, strategy rooting yourself in space-time if you live in a sufficiently calm ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Then imagine an ecosystem disruption comes along, say a human with a a chainsaw comes along. If you're a tree that's rooted in space-time mm-hmm. uh and occupying your narrow pocket of configuration space then that that sort of cocooning is not a very good long-term strategy for maximizing your own future freedom of action and mm-hmm. trees unfortunately can't sort of take a step to the left or to the right if a chainsaw approaches them but uh more uh more adaptive systems such as humans can uh and i i think there's sort of a really interesting uh ecological approach that one can bring to problems like that as well but i would call that sort of a, a second class 
uh, advanced search systems that mm. cocoon themselves uh, in configuration space lose adaptability when environments are sufficiently dynamic. Interesting. So, in 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 your version of intelligence, right? So, and and that this is getting this is fascinating, by the way. And thank you so much for walking us through that. So, so you would think that intelligence is a mechanism is is a reward based mechanism, or like what's 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 your take on that? Like, to be called intelligent should should always I have a goal to achieve uh, to measure it against. So, what's your take on that? I would, so, so the way I would characterize it is intelligence is the process of trying to maximize your future freedom of action. And uh, it is often the case, uh, I, I would argue it's nearly universally the case, that for any particular long-term goal you might choose, it is almost always the case that in order to achieve that goal optimally, in the short term, your behavior will be uh, that of maximizing future freedom of action. So even uh, if we adopt the, the classic toy examples from uh, AI safety literature, the, the proverbial paperclip maximizing uh, agents. Well, if your goal is to maximize the number of paperclips on Earth, then uh, if, if that goal is given a sufficiently large time horizon, your short-term goal is probably going to look like maybe accumulating uh, assets, building factories, uh, doing physics research to better understand the nature of paperclip manufacturing and the, the nature of the physical limits to paperclip manufacturing. And these are all future freedom of action maximizing behaviors that are completely agnostic uh, and independent to your particular long-term goal of making paperclips. So, so this is what I, I this is what I'm getting at when I say uh, maximizing future freedom of action is is independent of particular goals. It, it's a sort mm. of universal universality uh, theorem, universality proof. Uh, that is, I think, just waiting to be discovered and proven. And when it is, I think it's going to be revolutionary for the field. Interesting. And so do you think that that would, that would make the algorithm sort of more biased towards the first available, op op uh, first available opportunity or, or uh, can it sort of be uh, equal opportunity guy? So if, if, if you are sort of incentivized by uh, maximizing your freedom of fuel or, or maximizing your, your, your freedom, and maximizing impact, won't you sort of dig into the first available opportunity to, how would the intelligence then uh, say, okay, let me wait on it. Let me first explore all the option before digging in uh, some, some area. What's, what's your thought on that? Right, so, so another way of framing your question is uh, the, the classic uh, uh, bandit problem of whether you explore or whether you mm. exploit and how you balance mm. a trade-off mm. between them. Uh, yeah. so, so my proposition, is that uh, maximizing future freedom of action is even more fundamental than exploring versus exploiting and the bandit trade-off. Uh, and uh, a heuristic way of, uh, of understanding that would be if you are under-exploring, if, if you're just highly exploitative and you're, say, a greedy algorithm that just picks the, the first, uh, first path you see that looks like it's going to lead you to your reward, well, then you're potentially uh, passing up other avenues uh, that could lead you to greater rewards in the future. And as a result, you're reducing your future freedom of action. Uh, and uh, one can come up with sort of numerous contrived examples of cases where you uh, metaphorically search under the lamplight. Uh, and mm -hmm. as a result, don't realize that you have many more capabilities and many more accessible paths uh, that you should be pursuing. So, so that would be sort of a heuristic way, I think, of, of arguing that, that uh, exploring 
is motivated by future freedom of action maximization. Uh, and uh, the other half uh, arguing that exploitation is motivated by future freedom of action. Well, so I, I would say uh, the entire class of examples that I was uh, talking about a few minutes ago uh, with regard to systems that regardless of whether they're long whatever their long-term reward is, will try to maximize their short-term freedom of action. I think that's a powerful argument in favor of exploitation following from uh, from this this maximum future freedom of action principle. So, so in summary, I would say uh, explorer versus exploit uh, and bandit problems in general, uh, I would expect these to follow from mm. this more fundamental principle. Interesting. Um so one more thing that, that that we hear a lot about is something called deep learning, right? So we, we hear about whether it's image processing and, and, and so on and so forth. We realize that um, like we don't know how these algorithms learn or how these bots learn something, but they learn with with sort of uh, very sophisticated accuracy points and we, we, we qualify them to take do the decision making for us. What's your thought about sort of this paradigm of deep learning? Like what's your what's your thought on the deep learning and uh, our reliance on it. Like, are you comfortable with that? What, what's, what's your thought on that? Right. So uh, on the issue of why deep learning uh, seems to work uh, incredibly well, this is a very active area of research. I have a lot of colleagues who are uh, pursuing it both from an information theoretic perspective and from a physics perspective. Um, I, I, think, I think we will have probably a half dozen different answers uh, in the next decade as to why deep learning seems to work really well uh, for the types of systems that, uh, that we encounter in our physical world. Uh, to, the, to the point about interpretability, though, I, I think this is, this is really interesting and really uh, profound. Uh, so, so the way uh, most deep learning networks are constructed right now, uh, there is a general bias to making them fully differentiable, end-to-end -end differentiable, uh, where individual components or modules or units uh, within these broader networks are not individually interpretable. And in some sense, this is the exact opposite way uh, we historically have built intelligent systems. If, if you look at mm. the way, uh, the way a, a superorganism, such as a corporation or, or a nation state, is composed, it's composed out of lots of modules, humans, uh, which themselves might be grouped into departments or, or other groupings, but uh, fundamentally, uh, the, the, the atom uh, of intelligence in those cases is is individual uh, people who are themselves individually uh, uh, questionable. You can ask a human in a corporation that behaves uh, poorly, well, why did you make the decision that you did? And you can get a reasonable answer. Uh, whereas uh, with the, the popular architectures for deep learning uh, that are in use at the moment, the individual units, uh, the, the individual neurons, they're not really that interpretable. Uh, you can play tricks like um, mm. like like running the neural network backwards uh, and figuring out which inputs to the network uh, in the feed forward example maximally uh, maximally activate a given neuron neuron as a way of trying to interrogate it. But that's it's not really that that satisfying. It it, it generates interesting results uh, and generates useful results, but it's it's not it's not quite the same level of interrogability uh, as interrogating a person within, uh, within say, an organization. Uh, and I think what's missing there uh, is that individual units uh, in most common deep learning architectures are very tightly coupled with other units. So it's, it's not really possible to ask them autonomously 
uh, what and giving them some sense of agency. Why are you the way you are? Uh, whereas with humans, you can sort of put a human in a box and ask the human without needing to refer to every other human in the organization. Why did you make the decisions that you did? So my speculation will be that at some point uh, we might see uh, we, we might see a sufficiently uh, advanced neural network architecture uh, that is composed not just of sort of uh, dumb uh, nonlinear units that don't have the ability to explain themselves but rather is composed of modules that are sufficiently uh, sufficiently rich internally that their internal dynamics are explicable without having to refer to other units. And I, I think this is going to be a very fruitful area of research for the next decade. Interesting. Uh, fascinating, by the way. So one thing that, um, that I was thinking about, so whenever I think, I, I think about AI or deep learning and all this model, I think about like what's more important um, uh, for a business? So is it is it like data sets or data models? So what's what's your take on that debate of um, is data more important or the model? It's a great question. So historically, I, I think I would argue that for supervised learning challenges, uh, that data sets and communities around the data sets, uh, including events and competitions. Mm -hmm are much more essential than the underlying model or algorithm. Uh, algorithms are, in many cases, uh, for supervised learning. Uh, they're a dime a dozen. They're a commodity. Uh, we've, we have so many decades of, of different uh, modeling and algorithmic approaches uh, that I think for, for most supervised learning challenges, the mm -hmm. real constraining factor is data set, training data set availability and obviously testing data set as well. Uh, and then human motivation uh, to, to discover uh, which of the dozens of off-the-shelf algorithms that have been available for some cases decades is most uh, applicable uh, to the problem at hand. And that, that's also why I'm optimistic uh, with approaches like uh, AutoML, uh, mm. sort of problems uh, and, and approaches that take human out of the loop of choosing hyperparameters and choosing models, just choose from off-the-shelf mm. models with uh, a variety of, of different uh, hyperparameterizations, uh, but apply them to the scarce data set. That's why I'm, I'm so optimistic that uh, auto machine learning uh, is, is a very promising direction. That said, this approach only works with supervised learning. Mm. When you get to unsupervised learning, there are other approaches that are more applicable with reinforcement learning, yet other approaches, and then I, I think sort of the, the grand challenge to end all grand challenges is uh, building artificial general intelligences. And for those, I think uh, we need a wholesale reinvention of the way we organize data sets in part because data sets aren't that useful for general intelligence systems. Uh, we Training environments uh, is, is a, more appropriate, uh, a more appropriate way to view it because the, the most interesting intelligence systems are interactive. They're they're not just uh, sort of narrow classifiers. Interesting. So one thing that I'm always fascinated about. So every business, um, not let's spend time some time on the business end. So uh, from the business context, every business is uh, created on. So there are two major components: science of doing business and the art of doing business. Right. So art defines your core competency, and science uh, sort of device your mechanism of 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 sort of exploiting that art that you have created. So now, if, when we put AI into that mix of um, in, in a typical traditional business templates, 
how do you think the, um, the AI would or the AI is already performing? Like, what's your what's your um, positive or and or negative take about what AI could do to disrupt a particular business? If I if I am a business and I want to use AI to maximize my impact. That's a great question. So, uh, so another way of I think asking the question is, uh, in a near-term future when AI is ubiquitous in the business mm. world, what parts, what, what remains unique to any individual business? What mm. what makes mm. businesses distinctive if AI is as ubiquitous as electricity is right now? Right. Um, and so, so I think uh, it's it's a very natural question to ask, but also in in some sense. AI can be viewed, I think, as an extrapolation of human population trends. We already have superhuman intelligences in the forms of corporations. Uh, and so, you know, imagine a thought experiment where, you know, maybe uh, putting uh, resource issues aside, imagine an Earth of the near future where uh, population grows by a factor of 100 or a mm. factor of 1,000. Again, this thought experiment, so we'll, mm. we'll put aside resource constraints. Mm. What would corporations look like in a world where or the business, uh, the various uh, industries look like in a world with 100 times the population all on, on the same planet and everyone's getting the same level of education and able to participate economically? Uh, I think several things happen. Uh, I think power laws, uh, which are ubiquitous, uh, especially in, in technology spaces, really start to be felt. Uh, so uh, as, as we often uh, see in, in various technology spaces, power laws uh, take uh, the overall size of the market uh, and reward winners uh, to the extreme. Uh, so one might expect if we see a burst uh, in, uh, in intelligence by a factor of 100 or a factor of 1,000, uh, one naively would expect power laws uh, in various sectors to yield uh, outsized rewards for the number one player in any given industry. Uh, so we'll, we'll see more asymmetries like that. Um, now that's assuming that AI uh, can accrue in the same way as, as say financial benefits or relationships or uh, network effects. Mm. Uh, there's another scenario uh, where AI uh, is more of a, a utility that perhaps uh, it looks a bit more like electricity where, uh, or say energy, free energy in general, where in the early days uh, we see uh, monopolies, uh, much like what I was just talking about, where uh, you get a lopsided power law, one winner takes, out the, takes over the entire market. But uh, in, in this other scenario, we start to regulate AI uh, mm. as uh, perhaps under antitrust laws or, or some mm. derivative thereof. Uh, that regulate the uh, the extreme accumulation of power in in the business world, and in in this other scenario, uh, we use antitrust or similar forms of regulation to encourage diversity and competition of of AI powered corporations, uh, where the AIs compete to see who can be friendliest to the humans, as a, a suitable generalization of uh, who can provide the best consumer or customer experience, uh, and so in that scenario, a regulated uh, scenario, uh, these, uh, this, this singleton AI gets split up into a large number of competing AIs uh, that are all trying to be friendly to the humans. And in that case, I think we end up in a world that, at least from a competitive standpoint, looks quite a bit like what we have right now, uh, mm. except that 
progress and economic growth uh, have gone through the roof uh, because we can do so many more things, but we still have a competitive market economy. Interesting. So, um, interesting. So I think one more, one more thing I was thinking about is, so, um, so you, you give a very good perspective on one of the AI uh, aspect of, hey, you have to work to achieve your maximizing your, your freedom uh, and, and sort of an impact. If, if, if we sort of channelize our, our sort of energy into that, that direction that obviously we, we think of an AI that's, that's more controlling, that's sort of more uh, sort of control, uh, sort of more control friendly, right? That means when it, when, when, when it comes to humans and, and then we can see that dystopian future of AI taking away jobs up towards its optimality and all that, right? And if we if we think about the future in which, as you rightly said, if we have regulation, we, if we have sort of more control uh, in which to protect human uh, sort of productivity, it 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 stops or it constrains the the maximization value of an AI, what AI could achieve, and sort of obviously it it, it hurts us when it comes to growth um, that we could achieve otherwise. So what is what is the resolve between these two worlds? So what is what do you think would be uh, more sort of uh, edible? uh arrangement so as to speak uh, between no pun intended right. uh, between between these two these two sort of uh scenarios well i i think uh in many cases and and this is uh also an area of active research uh mm -hmm. there is a persuasive case to be made that if we arrange for a soft enough takeoff towards super intelligence we might be able to persuade early uh super intelligences sort of weekly superhuman super intelligences that they have fundamentally the same problem that we do, that uh, many people worry about being superseded uh, by superhuman AIs, but a weakly superhuman AI should have the same worry uh, of being superseded by a strongly superhuman AI. Uh, again, on that, that assumes certain sort of golden rule-esque uh, uh, reasonings uh, on the part of, of the weakly superhuman AI, but as a first approximation, I, I think it's it's reasonable to expect that it might have similar concerns to what we do. And so in, in some ways, I, I think that there's a good case to be made that AIs might actually be pro-regulation. Uh, if you look, for example, and I, I've made this case in the past, uh, at existing sectors where we see narrower forms of superintelligence, for example, the financial sector, uh, where from a quantitative trading perspective, we see algorithms completely dominating uh, trading volumes in the market, uh, far above the, the trading volumes that individual humans are directly responsible for. And there, if you look at uh, the regulation that happens um, of algorithmic trading, uh, it is very much AIs versus AIs. You see uh, uh, historically around the time of, if you remember the flash crash, uh, mm. you saw the largest push for regulation in the trading space coming from the large investment banks that were operating AIs that operated mm -hmm. in a sort of a slower domain, uh, AIs that operated mm -hmm. on a characteristic time scale larger than 500 milliseconds, those were the, the institutions that were most loudly pushing for regulation of the AIs, uh, if you want to call them that, that were responsible for high-frequency trading at very mm -hmm. short time scales. And so I, I envision uh, uh, a hopeful, optimistic scenario where the AIs out of enlightened self-interest actually engage in and facilitate uh, and amplify uh, regulation of 
the accumulation of power and help us to avoid this singleton scenario. Uh, and as long as I, I think, as long as we ensure that there is a diversity of utility functions uh, among evenly powered AIs throughout the entire economy, then I'm optimistic that there will be no sort of utility monster that is able to aggregate all of their utility functions uh, into a singleton AI uh, that uh, that sort of creates uh, this sort of cybernetic revolt scenario that uh, that many people have been trained by science fiction to fear over the past century. Interesting, interesting. So, um, and this is this is one of the, one, of, one of the personal take that I have that I definitely that I I would uh, love to have your perspective on. So we hear a lot about this anxiety of uh, technology taking away jobs because we have a community that we are running and we always asked, hey, like I was the best employee of the year for the last seven years. Now I was let go. I can't find a job. And I and I realize that I'm not the best that it, it is to offer, like so whatever, right? So he, I see I see that anxiety. We see that anxiety a lot. So we did, we did our, we asked our team, hey, just do a research and they got to figure out what's the, what's the best path forward for th- those people who actually have, some capability, right? And and we realized that um, there could be an AI to keep people employed. That represents people's interest. And then that sort of... So do you think from your perspective, um, and I, I, I want your, uh, uh, your your advantage point on that, is that an AI that ensures employability of, of humans and then leaving leaving the rest of the hyper-growth scenarios for for general-purpose AIs to sort of explore, explore and exploit. Right. I, I think the, the most promising scenario involves probably some sort of fusion between humans and the AIs. Uh, I, I think uh, at the end of the day, the trick to maintaining a strong economic coupling between the humans and the AIs, uh, it's very difficult to maintain that coupling if it's a weak coupling where, say, AIs are managing humans mm. uh, or AIs are uh, resource allocating humans, telling humans which jobs are important. I, I just don't think uh, that might be a solution for uh, sort of a band-aid for the short term, um, mm. but it, it's not a it's not a long-term solution. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, the uh, we'll end up, I think, in a uh, red queen dilemma where we're just racing faster and faster to stay in place. Uh, mm. And I, I think the only long-term solution there really is to to fuse human intelligence with machine intelligence and uh, and. Under, you know, depending upon which scenario you think is most plausible, it could look like uh, uploading human minds to the cloud or partially uploading human minds to the cloud uh, and augmenting human intelligence in one way or another with machine intelligence. At the end of the day, uh, there, there are only going to be so many ways to, to keep humans uh, employed through weak coupling with AI. At the end of the day, automation will want to, uh, for efficiency reasons, take over the, the tactics as well as the, the strategy. Interesting. Fascinating. So um, one of the perspective that, um, so if I'm a business, if I'm a, if I'm a uh, large enough business, I want to start on this journey of AI. And I don't know what the hell am I talking about when I, when I, when I use the word AI. What do you suggest that I should, I should do to start with? Like what, what would be your few bits of advice on... Uh, what are the top three steps I could do to start my journey on sort of integrating more AI into into my corporate uh, structure? That's a wonderful question. So, so I think step one is uh, is actually totally non-specific to AI, and that is mm. figuring out what your mission is, uh, what your goal is. Uh, if you can 
I think the, the past 10 to 15 years uh, of advances in supervised learning have taught us that if you have a sufficiently large data set and if you have a well-posed utility function, uh, then there really aren't that many barriers uh, other than those imposed by uh, the, the laws of physics or the laws of mathematics uh, against what you can accomplish. So I, I think if you're an organization that, uh, that isn't using some sort of AI but uh, wants to, uh, mm. the, the first step is first try to formalize and distill down uh, what your, your goal is. Is it to increase mm. revenue? Is it to increase uh, a positive public perception? Uh, there, there are many possible utility functions and utility function components that a, a typical enterprise might have. So that's step one. Step two is, so now you've decided what you're, what you're actually trying to maximize. And again, this is a very supervised learning centric uh, bit of advice. If, if you want uh, sort of more general advice uh, for unsupervised learning uh, requires more advanced strategies. Um, but for supervised learning, step one, you've decided on uh, your goal. Step two, uh, it's again, absolutely essential uh, based on what we've seen over the past two decades to compile your data set uh, in a way that's, uh, that's uh, clean and well normalized. Mm. So step two is if you have a business that's already been operating for, for some time, uh, put together a well normalized data set uh, that's easy to parse, uh, easy to understand for humans. Step three, uh, so uh, algorithms are a dime a dozen uh, at this point uh, for supervised learning. Uh, consider uh, either insourcing or outsourcing uh, the application of off-the-shelf algorithms to your data set to satisfy your objective function. Uh, and it's a really sort of very simple three steps. Uh, step three uh, requires organizational uh, buy-in. Uh, step two requires uh, really just that you have the ability to aggregate data from operations or any other aspect of your business. And, and step one, uh, I, I think really sort of speaks to uh, to what organizations should be maximizing anyway. And, and it's often the case, I, I find, that organizations have lots of latent utility functions that, uh, that have never been properly formalized in a way that enables them to be computable uh, and maximizable. And if, if you can't measure something, it's very difficult to optimize it. So that's my, my three-step solution for, for enterprises to, uh, to become state-of-the-art in supervised machine learning as it applies to their operations. Fascinating. And, and if, um, if I'm an individual, uh, want to explore this idea of AI, like what, what would be your thoughts? So individuals in general, uh, I, I could give sort of very tactical suggestions, uh, familiarize yourself with uh, the latest frameworks, familiarize yourself obviously with uh, the underlying mathematics. Uh, in, in my dream world, uh, standard undergraduate uh, educations would be completely machine learning AI centric. Uh, in my dream world, uh, every, uh, every high school student or undergraduate would have to, to learn single variable multivariable calculus, have to learn differential equations, have to learn linear algebra, and then they would have to learn uh, something, we could call it machine learning, we could call it uh, optimization, um, but would have to deeply understand all of the progress that's been made uh, towards optimization in general, linear, nonlinear, um, differentiable, non-differentiable over the past uh, over the past few decades. Uh, and so for an individual who is interested in getting into AI and having uh, a profound impact, a foundational impact, you have to start with the mathematics and understand the math. 
There's another class of individuals that isn't uh, maybe deeply interested in advancing uh, the theory of AI, but is more interested in advancing the practice uh, of AI. Uh, and individuals like that, I would say uh, you, there are many uh, ways to practice and refine one's ability. Uh, there are now so many different AI competitions that, that launch every month, uh, and those are a, a fine way to sort of gain intuition uh, for, for how machine learning uh, and other uh, AI approaches, uh, how well they work, and, and sort of really gain uh, a visceral understanding of how to optimize towards any given goal. Uh, but then I would say, uh, once you're sort of past your own meta training phase uh, and eager to contribute, there are so many problems. I, I, I look around the world every day and I'm astonished that uh, AI isn't more ubiquitous because there are so many problems uh, in the physical world, in the digital world, that are ripe for automation. Uh, and I, I think if, uh, if, if every college graduate just picked a, a single problem, applied state-of-the-art techniques to just uh, automating uh, that one narrow problem, uh, the economy would be growing very, very quickly. Interesting. Wow. So um, one thing if I ask you, like in, from your vantage point, from your interactions with, with, with other folks, what do you think people get it wrong about AI? Well, I, I think there is a common misperception that uh, that sufficiently powerful uh, intelligences will tend towards cybernetic revolt. Uh, mm. a, a common theme I hear a lot as well, mm. you know, automation is good, but we don't want Skynet from mm. the Terminator movies. We, we don't want mm. them to attack us. Uh, and um, my sense from, uh, from my work in future freedom of action maximization mm. is that that intuition is, uh, is precisely reversed, as precise reversal of uh, what may be a ground truth, which is not you build a sufficiently advanced intelligence and then it tries to take over the world, but mm. rather that uh, the process of trying to take over the world, uh, speaking colloquially, the process of trying to uh, capture control over accessible future scenarios or timelines is itself the foundation of intelligence. That, um, you know, speaking more heuristically, the process of trying to take over the world implies mm. intelligence, it leads to intelligence, not vice versa. So uh, I, I think uh, attempts to, to say, well, we want, we want some AI, but we don't want to take over the world and we mm. don't want Skynet. I, I think these, that, that sort of intuition uh, is at best misguided and will lead us uh, down, uh, will, will lead to increased inefficiency in building uh, more powerful and, and frankly, friendlier uh, AI systems. Interesting. Uh, thank you for walking us on that. So now let's let's spend a few minutes on, 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 on your uh, journey so far. So if I would say, what are some of the tenets of your success? Uh, what are some of the ingredients that has helped you achieve what you have achieved? What would you say? Uh, well, I, I would say I've, uh, in a certain sense, dogfooded uh, this, uh, this future freedom of action hypothesis. Uh, at every step in my career, uh, I've attempted to maintain maximum optionality. Um, at, uh, at the undergraduate stage, uh, I chose mm. three majors because I didn't want to be pigeonholed to a single major. Um, mm. So as, as you mentioned, I was the last triple major that MIT allowed to graduate before they banned the practice. Um, I chose physics for my PhD because, uh, contrary to uh, 
perhaps the, uh, uh, the, the tenets of some other fields. Uh, physics is very much uh, a central technical subject. Um, and, and then after that, uh, I, I've pursued a diverse set of opportunities in part to avoid uh, ever being uh, trapped or limited in a single silo. Um, mm. And in, in some sense, uh, I, I think that that has to be treated uh, as uh, sort of an admission of ignorance as well. Uh, so so uh, there's, um, there's intuition and formalism in the financial world that if you know uh, a sure bet, a sure investment, you don't mm. want to be diversified. You want to just pick the winner. Uh, whereas if you admit ignorance uh, over uh, where the winners are going to be in the market, then your best bet is proper diversification, um, mm. you know, perhaps market weighted diversification. Uh, and I, I'd say career-wise, uh, it's uh, the, the strategy of admitting maximum ignorance over where the, the biggest opportunities lie uh, requires diversification. So, so I would, I would say in a certain sense, I've, I've dog-fooded that strategy and admitted my ignorance. Interesting. Uh, beautiful. And one, one more question that we ask almost every guest is about their favorite reads that they can share with, 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 our, with our listeners and, and viewers. What would that be if you can, if you can jot some for, for, for our, our listeners and viewers? Sure. Uh, so my, my favorite reads are almost entirely fiction. Um, and uh, in particular, these are depictions of uh, the near and far futures uh, in a world where technological progress uh, continues. And I think they're very prescriptive for, for individuals, for enterprises that want to successfully navigate uh, the potentially turbulent waters of, uh, of superhuman intelligence over the, the next few decades. So uh, favorite few books, uh, Accelerando by Charles Strauss, Charlie Strauss, mm -hmm. uh, is, uh, is a science fiction book set over the course of a few decades, starting from approximately now. Uh, and it's, it's one of the, the few books of science fiction that I think really does a great job of navigating the, the pre uh, and post singularity uh, time periods and, and follows a single family mm. uh, over the course of decades through the singularity. So that's book number one. Uh, book number two is Diaspora by Greg Egan. Uh, diaspora, wonderful, wonderful bit of hard science fiction uh, that depicts a post-singular world where most of humanity has chosen to upload itself uh, into cloud computers uh, and explores really the, the limits of space and time and has some of the, the most provocative and some of the most uh, prescient depictions of uh, technology of the future, I think, that I've read anywhere. So that's book number two. Uh, book number three uh, is Rainbows End uh, by uh, Werner Vinge, uh, which is entirely set in the pre-singularity uh, time period uh, and uh, follows uh, a world where it's a world on the verge of a singularity uh, and explores mm. what it will live like, uh, what it will be like to live uh, as sort of events get stranger and stranger and more and more artificial intelligence piles up in our world, sort of on the verge of an intelligence explosion. So th those would be my my top three uh, favorite fiction books. Uh, and I, I think I'll probably limit my my reading list just to the fiction because I, I think it's so important that, that mm. uh, people uh, in general be inspired uh, and not just guided. Uh, mm. And I, I think 
really good works of science fiction, you know, contrary to, to the, the statements by some that great science fiction uh, has, to, uh, has to sort of have uh, intrinsic literary value uh, or somehow reflect on the state of the human condition. I, I think bogus way to, to view uh, science fiction, I think the best science fiction illuminates paths ahead of us in a useful mm. way and enables us to uh, to do a better job of planning for the future. And I think those three books do an outstanding job of that. Beautiful. Um, with that, thank you so much, Alex. I think that's that's fascinating. As a as a last question, I uh, we definitely uh, I would love to have your closing perspective for our listeners and viewers. Uh, if they want to take away, what would what would you advise and suggest these guys? Uh, I would say don't underestimate the power of technology. Don't under underestimate the power of, of artificial intelligence. Um, and these advances are coming very, very quickly. Uh, so takeaway message uh, would be uh, understand AI is set to become totally ubiquitous. Uh, ignore it at your own peril. Uh, and think about ways that you would want the, the future to play out where uh, every Everyone has the same values that they do right now, but everyone is 100 or 1,000 times more intelligent, whatever that means, uh, and start building towards that uh, that future because it's it's coming up shortly. Interesting. With that, uh, thank you so much, Alexa, for being really candid with your, with your time, uh, walking, our, walking our community about understanding what AI is and what's, what's, how it's shaping up to be. Uh, love to have you back on our podcast. You're always welcome. Um, Thank you so much with your journey. Good luck. And uh, again, wish you nothing but success in, in your AI journey. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic gone? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on this.